The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, inflation, high interest rates and the art market. Spain's law of historical memory and an Albrecht Dürer printing plate recreated for an exhibition about economics. On this, the final episode of this season, James Goodwin, a specialist in the art market and its history, tells us what high interest rates mean for the art market and what lies ahead. As Spain heads to the polls in July, I talk to Emilio Silva, president of the Association for the Recovery of Historical Memory in Spain, about what the election might mean for the controversial Spanish laws of historical memory and democratic memory relating to the civil war of 1936-39 to and the period of Francisco Franco's fascist dictatorship. And this episode's Work of the Week is a project by the Swedish duo Goldin and Senneby. The work, called Quantitative Melancholia, involves recreating the lost plate for Albrecht Dürer's famous engraving, Melancholia 1, and is part of the exhibition Economics the Blockbuster, which opens this week at the Whitworth Art Gallery in Manchester, UK. A reminder that you can subscribe to the art newspaper by visiting our website and clicking the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage. You can choose from a digital, complete or student subscription. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and to our sister podcast, A Brush With, and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, this week's auctions in London have so far been rather underwhelming. Bar the sale of Gustav Klimt's final painting for a record auction price in Europe of 85.3 million with fees at Sotheby's Modern and Contemporary Art Evening Sale in London on Tuesday, the sales confirmed auction experts' predictions of a cooling market. Among the broader factors are high global inflation and widespread rises in interest rates. The Bank of England hiked interest rates in the UK by another half a percent to 5% last week. So, is this a temporary downturn or a deeper malaise. What does it mean for the art market now and in the future? I spoke to James Goodwin, a specialist in the art market and its history, to find out. James, how would you describe the economy at the moment? Well, on the news, it's it's certainly much more gloomy than we've been used to, and, and that includes even the last few years. The higher prices, at least in the UK, are are very worrying, ditto in most of the developed world, and much less so Asia, so I read. So therefore, economies are having to adjust to the situation. It means in- inevitably, I fear, and more and more people are talking about this, a recession probably later this year and next year. Right. So tell us, that there's this term stagflation. Can you tell me about this term? What does it mean? And what are the implications, if you like? Well, it was first really apparent in the 1970s and to some extent in the 80s. And and what it means is that higher prices and a recession are combined. I mean, this often happens for a while, but it, it usually happens because there has been a failure to tackle inflation which is really where we are at the moment. And uh, central banks for the last 18 months or so have been uh, racing to push up interest rates at a faster rate than I think previously in order to quell inflation. And the constant discussion is between how far this must go, when it stops, does it need to go further, and so on. And the, the levels of uncertainty still remain because inflation is, is so high, especially in the UK, for added reasons. 
but more so as well in the US. Uh, this Friday, there's going to be another key inflation figure. So everybody's on tent hooks to see whether that will come down, allowing some pressure to be taken off. But certainly the stock markets seem to be looking ahead or have been looking ahead much more optimistically about the future and that we've seen the worst of inflation. So stagflation is when prices rise, inflation goes up, and we also have a recession. Yeah, we've seen in the past, in the 1970s and 80s, that inflation wasn't tackled properly or quickly enough. And, and this, this seems to be what has happened again, with the result that they've raised interest rates much further and faster than usual. And, and now we're at a point where we're hoping that inflation is on the way down, but last month, core inflation rose again. Now, We've heard a lot about the effect of high interest rates on homeowners and in the personal lives of people, if you like. So tell us what it means in terms of the art market. What do high interest rates do? I guess we're talking mostly about collectors and that side of it. All investments, we're not talking about here about art investment, but all investments are, are measured against the rate of interest. And when interest rates rise, effectively, it takes money out of the economy. And we see this particularly in things like stock markets and other investments. So the result is there's less money to spend on those goods. Those people who have cash in savings and so on do relatively well. So it means that in the art market, there is less money to go on art. Right. And so what do collectors tend to do in these circumstances? We've had interest rates rises before, we've had inflation before. What do collectors do historically in these circumstances? If we look back to higher inflation periods like in the 1970s, a lot of people put their money in into art. It was believed against higher inflation. But as I wrote to your newspaper a few years ago, what happens is this is good up to the point where interest rates rise. And then when interest rates rise, they're less likely to spend on art. However, I see that there was a very successful sale last evening in London. So, Yes, that's right. There was a Klimt that sold at Sotheby's last night, just before we were talking here. It seems to me that that's quite indicative in the sense that there were some pretty sort of slow contemporary sales in the same sale. So, in other words, Klimt is a sure thing. We know Klimt is a canonic master who we know sells for many millions of pounds. But contemporary art, which is inevitably more risky, didn't sell as well. So is that the kind of thing that will happen in these economic conditions? Yes, I think people will cut back generally. I Just before this interview, I had a look to see that the Cat Gemini annual report that was published just quite recently on high net worth individuals, which is one of the best ones because it's been around since the mid-1990s. I think the fall in the number of high net worth individuals was the highest in the last decade. There have been other times when it's fallen, but mostly that number has risen for the last 15 years. So spending is, even at the top end, is going to be less. I, I also read your reports on the Art Basel shows where there was more caution than usual and and then there seems to be more discussion about a switch between generations as well in money, I noticed. Right. So do you then think that the idea of sure thing works, art that we know is a better form of investment will continue to be okay, but any aspect of the market which is more risky is going to suffer? 
Yes, that has always been the case. I'm a historian predominantly of art market history. And you see this going back from uh, really the 1870s when people stopped buying pre-Raphaelite paintings. And then in the 1930s when there was another major economic setback where people switched to old masters, particularly Italian primitive paintings then. But they did still buy Impressionist and post-Impressionist pictures. And there was an interest in, in new work too going on at the time. So it, it doesn't tend to be a, a complete switch. I mean, in the early 90s recession, there was uh, a switch away from the boom in Impressionist and post-Impressionist to interest in old master pictures again as well. So people tend to go back to the, the safety of certain things, but without completely dismissing it. I think it's probably more important to say that they're actually looking for value in what they're buying and looking ahead while also seeing something as a safety valve in their buying. But of course, people have many different tastes, but this is just a general comment. Yeah, and of course, I guess with art, the idea of assessing value is incredibly fraught with complexity, right? So a colleague of ours, Melanie Gerlis, wrote a book in which she argued that actually art was not necessarily a great investment, but precisely because there are so many factors which determine value, right? Yes, looking at the art market for the last 25 years, one of the biggest drivers of the art market is we all assume that people have there is surplus wealth. I mean, this, this is historically shown, but there's also very much a sociological element to art buying in competition with one another. And this is, I think, in many ways, this is what the auction houses feed off at auctions. And among many other reasons, of course, aesthetic value is, is the biggest power of all underneath that. But yes, there are a multitude of, of things going on. But I would say that top of the list was uh, net wealth and then followed by a social aggrandisement, if you like, to move you into the cultural sector. And I think we've, we've very much seen that in the last 25 years. I'd like to talk about the sort of longer term trends, if you like, in terms of economies, because there are ageing populations, there is a smaller workforce, and therefore there are enormous complications that all economies, all economies right across the world are facing. And it seems at some point this has got to have effect on economies and including the art market. Can you say something about what your thoughts are on that? Yes, I think this is, in our times, is the, is the biggest force of all. This has been discussed really since the 1980s, is the fact that we have that large generation born after the Second World War, who we, we know as the baby boomers, born in 1945 to 65, who were outsized in number relative to those before and those since. And they are the ones that have really pushed up asset prices across the board from property uh, shares to art and so on since the 1980s uh, when they came of age. And that same generation is now passing on. So the, the first lot are in their late 70s. So that art is going to be put back into the market, presumably by their offspring uh, or their inheritors, who then keep some of it or, or spend the money that they get on other things, possibly art, possibly not art. It means, well, there are two schools of thought on this. One is that the baby boomers are offering the world a surplus of savings, which is why interest rates have been pushed down so much in the last 20 years or so. 
The other view, which is the one I hold more strongly, is that we are now starting to see a shortage of labor and the price of the elderly in terms of healthcare, social care, and so on, is rising inexorably. And the combination of those two things is inflation, in my view, meaning that there is less money to spend on things like art. But uh, the art market's reaction, I hope, is to diversify across the world and to sell art from many different countries. I mean, the obvious example of a younger country or a younger region is, of course, Africa. And I, I think attention is, is shifting far more to that as it should be in the sense that who are the young artists there and, and where are they going. But the, the buyers could you know, be as much in Asia as we saw last night with the blimp sale as they are Westerners. But it's always fascinated me to see what will happen to the prices of the expensive art that Westerners bought after the war or since the 1970s and 80s. What happens to that? Is that taste shared with a new generation of wealthy who could be from anywhere? Right. And of course, one of the implications of an ageing population is that the need to pay for public services is going to grow. And therefore, of course, one of the biggest ways to deal with that is to raise taxation. Up until now, so many economies in Europe the US and so on, have resisted taxing the wealthy. And that's why we've got this incredible gap between rich and poor across the world. But one of the things that it occurs to me is that that might have to give at some point, and that surely could have a massive effect on the art market. Yes. In my view, as economies slow and costs remain the same, going back to your stagflation question, we're entering this era which a former US Treasury Secretary described as secular stagnation, which means that we have high costs and less money to fund it, which means to me inevitably higher taxes on wealth in particular. I think this is around the corner. I mean, that already in the last few years, the present US Treasury Secretary has tried to equalise corporation tax around the world I think it's just a matter of time before they go for things like inheritance tax and particularly capital gains tax. And yes, I I think this will have an adverse effect on the art market. And of course, that means inevitably that there will be higher pressure to develop collectors in low tax economies, right? We talked about Hong Kong, literally Hong Kong last night with the Klimt. We think it's a Hong Kong buyer. And also we know about buyers in the Middle East from low tax or no tax economies there. So do you think, therefore, that galleries, auction houses, fairs and so on will be really pushing to find greater collector bases in those countries? They could well do. We've seen it in sports, of course, in the Middle East, drawing away the golf business and so on to that. But those places will also face high costs. I mean, the Gulf states, I think, is you know getting to the point where it's sort of full up and the Gulf states may well attract more of those galleries and fairs and so on. But bear in mind that a lot of the people that are maybe taking their money there may well be taxed in the American way, whereby you're taxed on your worldwide income. So this may negate some of this. And then, of course, the, the smaller tax havens like Singapore is, a, is another key one, along with the Gulf states, you know, have their own problems of development. And how far does this go? And how unequal is their own society? It it may not suit them. So I'm not altogether convinced that the market's going to shift to Dubai or 
Hong Kong or Singapore as much as it might want to. Now, tell me, what's your overall kind of feeling, if you like, about the art market? We talked a lot about a correction for about a year or two now, a year and a half or so. We've been talking about correction, a bit of a slowdown. How bad do you think it is and could it get a lot worse? Well, according to my calculations, the year 2027 is when the demographic shift really occurs near enough. Now, this could be negated by raising the retirement age and and other means such as higher immigration. But essentially, the world is running short of workers, which means higher costs. So between now and then, people may well keep putting their money in art as a safe haven. There's still a great number of people who believe that this is temporary and we'll go back to where we were. My own view is no, we won't. I think we've had the best years and we will see flurries of activity, I hope. But I'm essentially optimistic that the way that most of this is overcome is by greater efforts at globalization. This has been in the last 10 years, globalization since the credit crisis in 2007, 2008. Globalization has been sort of put on a sort of back burner. But I think that this will grow again. But there are signs, however, in the US of much more attitude to reshoring their economy as well. So the kind of nation-state mixed with globalization, but it, essentially, I would say all economies need to trade more, and the more they trade, the, the, the better it can be for the art market. But essentially, I think we're on a more of a downhill path than we've known. I, I think we've had the good years. James, thank you so much. Thank you very much. You can read more on this week's auctions at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android. Coming up, Spain's elections and historical memory laws and Golden and Senebi's recreation of a Dura engraving plate. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. The French artist Claude Levesque has been charged with rape and sexual assault of minors under the age of 15. The charges were revealed last week by the public prosecutor in Bobigny, in Paris's northeastern suburbs, where the artist lives. The 70-year-old artist was left free under judicial control, but is not allowed to leave France, according to the prosecutor. His lawyer, Patrick Klugman, declined to comment, but Levesque has asked magistrates to lift the ban. Jonathan Fine, an American art historian who served as scientific director of the Welt Museum in Vienna since July 2021, has been selected to succeed Sabina Haag as general director of the city's Kunsthistorisches Museumsverband, overseeing three major Viennese museums. From the 1st of January 2025, Fine will be responsible for the Kunsthistorisches Museum, the Welt Museum and the Austrian Theatre Museum. Andrea Meyer, the Austrian culture minister, said that Fine stands for a thoroughly modern concept of a museum that addresses social questions questions without neglecting its fundamental tasks. And finally, a fresco painting discovered at Pompeii shows a lavish meal with pizza-like bread at its centre, but the flat circular bread, pictured with a goblet of wine and a pineapple-like fruit, lacks the classic pizza ingredients tomato and mozzarella. The 2,000-year-old fresco was discovered during excavations in the Reggio 9 area of Pompeii's archaeological park, which is close to Naples, where pizza is believed to have been invented in the 1800s. Gabriel Zucktriegel, the director of the Pompeii Archaeological Park, said that it may be a distant and ancestor of the famous dish. You can read all these stories at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android.
We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Christie's Classic Week returns with its summer series of live and online auctions, featuring some of the finest works by old masters, by gold and silversmiths, and by master craftsmen and women from antiquity to the 20th century. This season's highlights include a rediscovered pair of portraits by Rembrandt, paintings by Fra Angelico and El Greco, a magnificent marble bust by Antonio Canova of Helen of Troy, a set of corrected proofs by Charles Darwin, and a handwritten letter by Mozart. You're invited to reflect on on the beauty, innovation and humanity of the works of art on offer at their London sale room at 8 King Street from the 1st to the 14th of July. Entry is free and open to all. Visit christies.com to find out more. Now, on the 23rd of July, Spain will go to the polls after its socialist prime minister, Pedro Sánchez, responded to widespread defeats in regional and municipal elections in May by calling a snap general election. One of the most contentious areas of Spanish politics is what's become known as historical memory, particularly in relation to the Spanish Civil War of 1936-39 to and to the dictatorship of the fascist leader of the so-called Falange, Francisco Franco. His authoritarian rule continued after the war up to his death in 1975, after which Spain entered a period of transition that led the country to democracy. But in recent years, major fissures have opened up between the two main parties, the PSOA, or Socialist Party, and the right-wing PP, or Partido Popular, on the subject of acknowledging the atrocities of Francoist Spain and exhuming mass graves of civilians murdered during the war and afterwards, and with respect to monuments to Franco and his associates. Currently, the Partido Popular and its leader, Alberto Núñez Fejó, are ahead in the polls, but to gain power, it might need to form a coalition with the far-right party Vox. It means that the law of historical memory that effectively legislated for the exhuming of graves and dismantling of Francoist heritage is under threat. I spoke to Emilio Silva, president of the Association for the Recovery of Historical Memory in Madrid, about the laws relating to the legacy of the Civil War and Francoism and how the election may affect them. Emilio, it's a very complex subject, but I wonder if you might begin by telling us a little more about the law of historical memory and how it works in Spain, because, of course, there was the period in the transition when there was the so-called Pact of Forgetting or the Pacto de Olvido. So can you tell me more about what the law of historical memory says versus that original pact after Franco's fascist rule? Well, during the Spanish transition, the Spanish elites decide to create a deal or pact of silence, no, and left the problems of the violations of human rights during the Franco's regime, the Franco's dictatorship. And for a long time, our parliament, our institutions never talk about the past. No? They left the past under the carpet and they talk about another things. No, But during the transition, some relative or missing person start to look for them, to open graves, not with uh, archaeologists, or forensic doctors, only with their hands and when they love, they look for the grave. They take out the bones and put the bones in the cemeteries. And this social movement during the late 70s stopped in 1981. We have a coup d'etat in the 23 February 1981. This was Tejero, the man with the gun in, in the Spanish parliament. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, yes. He came to the parliament with another military people and he cried, quite everybody, everybody. And the relatives of the missions left the tools and uh, learned to be silenced like in during the dictatorship. No? 
And we need right. another generation, the grandsons, uh, the granddaughters' generation, 20 years later, to start to look for again the missings. My grandfather was a missing person, was the first victim of the Franco's regime identified by the DNA test. Wow. I found the place of the grave in 2000, in March 2000. A group of archaeologists and forensic doctors opened the grave in October 2000. They found there 13 people, all Republicans, civilians, killed by a group of uh, gunners of the Falange, the fascist party in Spain. And during 64 years, all the bodies were in a ditch close to the road in a small village in the northwest of Spain. Two years before died my grandmother, the widow of my missing grandfather. We identified the body of my grandfather. We put the bones of my grandfather with the, with the bones of my grandmother. And during the exhumation in two weekends in the free time of the uh, archaeologists and forensic doctors, uh, some relatives arrived there to ask, I am looking for a brother, I am looking for a father. And then we start to help these people. In 2000, we don't know how many people are missing in Spain. Still today, we, we don't have official number of missings. No, we only have a, a number of missings from the national audience, the Spanish National Court during the 2008. 114,000 missing persons, civilians. They don't die in a war, in a confrontation of two armies. They were kidnapped by the Falange, and one day they were killed in a ditch like my grandfather, and they had the, the bodies to create more painful for the families and to create fear in, in one part of our society. You know? And the Spanish elites never talk about this question. During 25 years, in the recovery democracy, they don't want to talk about it. And we open a grave, and we start to break the silence. We start to say to the government, we want justice, no? This is not only a political problem. It's a juridical problem. But during the transition in 1977, the Spanish parliament have a new amnesty law. And this amnesty law left free 89 people from left organizations, but the amnesty have the protections for all the crimes of the dictators. During a lot of years, the Spanish parliament and the political parties used to say the amnesty law is very good for the victims of the Franco's regime. But when, when we start to go to the courts to try to trial these crimes, we know what happened with the amnesty law. It's an auto-amnesty law for the responsibles and the perpetrators of the violations of human rights during the dictatorship. Mm. At the end, in 2007, we have the first historical memory law. This law don't take the responsibility for the government to look for the missing. This law says... For example, we cannot have streets with uh, names of responsibles of the Franco's dictatorship. But behind the law, there is not a very was strong political will, no, volunteer. Mm -hmm. And this law has 15 years. And still today, for example, in Madrid, I am living in Madrid, we have a big Arco de la Victoria, an Arco of Victory. Yes. This arc celebrates the victory of Franco, Hitler, and Mussolini, the French victory of the fascist armies in Europe, no? It's the prologue of the Second Great War, no? And they literally marched in Madrid in 39 at the end of the Civil War under that arch. 
to celebrate the victory of fascism in Spain. Yes. And also this monument celebrate the killing of my grandfather, because this monument of the victory of the fascism say, it's good for the country to kill 100,000 civilians, no? With no weapons. During some years after this law of 2007, we had the visit of two groups of United Nations. In September 2013, we have the group of forced missing disappearance people, no? Mm-hmm. And in March 2014, we have the the visit of the special rapport for the truth, justice, and reparations. And they have a two strong reports about Spain, no, in the summer of 2014. But the government of the Popular Party in 2014 don't want to say anything to the reports, including the Spanish representation if the Assembly of Human Rights of the United Nations said more or less that all the, the reports are full of lies. Right. Because we resolved this problem during the transition, no? It's the official version of the Spanish transition, no? Yeah. We have reconciliation and we left uh, without problems our relation with the past, no? So the law of historical memory was a, a law that was brought in by the PSOE, which is the Socialist Party. And, yes. and then the Partido Popular came into power and effectively rejected yes. that law. At the same time, the government of Zapatero from 2004 to 2011, he created in 2006 some subvention, some public money. Yes, a subsidy. Yes, for exhumation of mass graves. Within my organization, we are, the most of us are relative omissions, that the human rights in a democratic country don't need subventions. A democratic country have to guarantee the human rights, no? We don't have a, a piece of money to public resources to look for some people. You have uh, some money and the relatives have a competition to get this money and let outside and all the relatives with the same problem, no? We say to the government, the responsibility to look for the missions is your responsibility and the responsibility of the justice. After the visit of the United Nations groups in the last year, 2022, we have another law. Now it's not historical memory law, it's democratic memory law, no? Mm. But for us, we have the same problem because... This law don't take the responsibility to look for the missing people. This law preserves the question of the subventions to the exhumations, no? And it's a benefit for the political parties in the government. If I am in the government, you have some public money to look for the missiles. If I'm not in the government, you don't have anything. Right. Then you decide, no? And we say, no, it's my right. You don't give me my right because it's my right. It not depends on the name of the political party in the government. And you have to guarantee this question. And the historic, the democratic memory law, for example, don't have any mention to the Catholic Church, was one of the principal institutions on the collaboration of the, of the violations of human rights and the moral, uh, physical, and social repression against the losers of the Spanish Civil War, no? The law doesn't say anything about the Catholic Church. They want to create a census of victims 
but they don't want to create a census of perpetrators. Right. And if you are talking about the truth, you have to tell the story of the victims and you have to tell the story of the perpetrators. But they preserve the same deal of the transition, no? You live quite the responsibles of the violations of human rights, no? And in the last historic uh, democratic memory law, you can read 142 times the word victims and zero times the word perpetrators. Right. And explain a lot of things of our problems in Spain to confront the past. Because during the 50s, 60s, 70s of the past century, the most of the people in Spanish universities are children of the members of the Franco's regime. And they create the elite who manage the recovery of democracy and the question about the past of the dictatorship during those years. And any of them want to confront really this question, no? For example, I was talking about the arc of the victory, no? This arc of the victory is in, the, in one of the principal streets of Madrid. It's very near the, resi the official residence of all our president of the government from 1977 to today. All of them pass with the official car very close to this monument. And any of them say, I don't like a monument celebrating the victory of Franco, Hitler, and Mussolini. I have to make something with this monument. No? Any of them. Right. And of course, a member of Franco's government, Manuel Fraga, was the founder of the Partido Popular, which is in front in the polls for the next election. You've obviously said there that anyway, the law of historical memory and the law of democratic memory are not sufficient and the government are not acting enough on them. Do you fear that that situation will get worse should Alberto Núñez Feijóo's government win power in July? I think Feijóo never read the law. Right. They repeat, I want to destroy the democratic memory law. I want. I think it's only an electoral tick, but any journalist in Spain asks to the leader of the Popular Party, exactly from the 65 pages of the Democratic Memory Law, what's your problem? They don't talk about the Catholic Church, and you're very close with the Catholic Church. They don't talk about to recovery the properties of the losers of the civil war in the hands of the winners. Mm. My grandfather, for example, was living in Argentina in New York during the 20s, they have a very good business and the members of Falange take all the properties of my family. And the law say, okay, they take your your properties, but the state is, don't have any responsibility right. to put the properties in, in the hands of your family. No, What's the problem for the right party? I don't know. Why? The law don't want to talk about the perpetrators. No, You are talking about the founder of the Popular Party, Manuel Frada. If you go now to the web page of the Popular Party and you put the link of who say our history, mm. you uh, say more or less the expression Manuel Fraga de Barne in another time was Minister of Information and Tourism. And then they say the time. I know the time. He was minister during the Franco's dictatorship. He was minister of a dictatorship. But they want to have this information, no? Right. Perhaps could be worse for us, no? My organization look for the people with no public money. We only have the support of the members of the, our association and volunteers from more than 20 
two countries in 23 years. No, mm-hmm. we will make the same work helping people, etc. But we have a problem because perhaps we have a government with the strong right and the extreme right parties, PP and Vox, mm-hmm. and, and they want to defend the arc of victory. No, For example, now the town hall of Madrid with popular party mayor is uh, taking the responsibility of, of the arc of victory. The arc of victory depends of the Universidad Complutense. It's in the place of the campus of the Complutense University, the biggest in Spain and the biggest in, in Madrid. And the the mayor of Madrid want to care this monument. Right. Why? Because they they want to care this kind of memory of the monument. And they have this kind of problems because in the institutions it's not the same have people defending democracy that people more or less saying Franco is not very bad for our history, no? Perhaps it's not a free country, but they have uh, good things for our country. And for us could be a very big problem, including for us, because we don't know. Today in Spain, we know they knew that a town near Madrid, Valdemorillo, censored a theater play, a screenplay, Orlando from Virginia Wall. Right. And the local leader of Vox, now in the town hall, say we stop the representation of Orlando here. And they can say tomorrow, I don't leave you to look for missions. Right. Or I create a very difficult process in the administration to look for missions. Could be possible. Right. So so it seems likely that if the Partido Popular wants to form a government, they will need Vox to help them form that government. Is that correct? Yes, it's impossible right. that the Popular Party arrive to the government without the support of Vox. Right. Okay. So I, I wanted to ask you more about the Arco de Victoria, because I know that you filed a complaint with the Attorney General recently about Complutense's lack of action relating to the law of historical memory. Can you explain why you've done that, given that, as you say, there's been no action up until now, and should there be a right-wing government after this point, there certainly won't be any action? I think our problem, our real problem, I was talking about the people who went to the universities during the Franco's regime. Part of our problem is that the leaders of the principal political parties during a lot of years in Spain are children of the members of the Franco's regime in the Socialist Party and in the Popular Party. It's a problem of our social structure. And during the process to try Franco in the national audience by the judge Baltasar Garzón, mm-hmm. the same who detained Pinochet in London in 1998, and our constitutional tribunal say, it's good, you can use the Spanish court to detain the dictatorship of another country, but not to trial our own dictatorship. Mm-hmm. In this moment, people from the Socialist Party and people from the Popular Party have the same interests. And they finish the career of the youth, no? And any government in Spain during 47 years after the Franco's death want to confront really this question. One Uruguayan writer, Eduardo Galeno, was living exiled in Spain during a lot of years, and he used to say the justice is like snakes. They only bite barefoot people, no? People without shoes. And the Spanish victims of the Franco's regime, they have no shoes today in democracy. 
For example, in 2010, we went to Argentina. Today, the only juridical process in the war against the Franco's crimes are in the Argentine justice. We worked to Argentina in 2010 to create a process of universal justice, like the Spanish court uh, create processes of universal justice with Argentina, Chile, Guatemala, Rwanda, Tibet. All the far problems of human rights have interest for the Spanish courts. But the close problems of human rights into Spain, we don't have any door to go into the courts, no? And for example, the real problem is a problem of a political will, no? Some months ago, my government say, I want to send some forensic doctors from the justice minister to Ukraine. They only have to decide and they go with the forensic doctors to Ukraine. We are waiting for these forensic people from 23 years ago. We pay to the government to create this group of forensic doctors. When any members of any government decide, these forensic doctors have to help the relatives. Never. We have a very strong discussion in the parliament. You are destroying the peace in the Spanish society because you want to talk about the past and you are creating divisions between some Spaniards and another Spaniards, and you say that there are bad Spaniards like the Franco's people and good Spaniards like the Republicans defending democracy, and you are creating divisions, no? But when my government say, I want to send this, these members of the Spanish court to make investigations in Ukraine about the mass graves of the Ukraine war, we don't have any debate. We don't have any problem. The problem is with our questions of our country of our dictators of Franco, no? We never find real help from our institutions. The best politics of memory is the justice, and we are fighting for the justice. Emilio, thank you so much. Thank you. You can read more on this story on the website or the app. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. From today, the city of Manchester in the UK celebrates its latest international festival with various cultural events, including the opening of the new arts centre, Factory International. Also part of the programme is Economics, the Blockbuster, an exhibition at the Whitworth Art Gallery that includes contemporary art projects that the gallery says reclaim and reimagine the economy. Among them is a project by the Swedish duo Golden and Senneby called Quantitative Melancholia, which involves recreating the lost plate for Elric Dewey famous engraving Melancholia 1 while exploring the economic concept of quantitative easing. The exhibition is curated by a group of specialists led by Poppy Bowers, the interim head of exhibitions at the Whitworth, and including Ismail Ertuk, a senior lecturer at the Alliance Manchester Business School at the University of Manchester. I spoke to Ertuk about this intriguing work. Ismail, first off, can you tell us a bit more about Goldin and Senebi because they've made economics the subject of their work, not just this work, but more generally. Yes, uh, and there has been a book about them published by the Stockholm School of Economics. So their work on economics and finance in particular has been recognised in the academia, but also they have actively reached out to uh, academics uh, who write on, uh, especially on, on finance, to have various forms of uh, collaboration 
in a way, they seem to be outsourcing some of their work to academics as well as outsourcing to like one of the books they wrote on offshores. Uh, it's a novel, but it was uh, written by a ghost uh, writer. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it is part of their work, uh, working with academics, uh, writing on contemporary economics and finance. And, and their work as well uh, is, is about... Uh, fictional side of uh, the economy. They like the idea of uh, performance because uh, today's economy is, uh, especially finance, there's a disconnection between uh, finance and economics, uh, finance for itself. Most financial profits are driven from uh, financial institutions and actors interacting between themselves. Uh, I think uh, they look at that uh, aspect of, of finance in particular. Is there an aim then in their work to sort of cut through the opacity of economics and finance then? Or is there a kind of public aim here? As in, you know, many of us are not specialists in this field. Many of us find some of the language rather arcane. So is it about communicating about this subject or is it about being immersed in the kind of academic space? Well, like most artwork, there are multi-layers uh, to the yeah. intentions and explorations and each particular work looks at different aspects of it, but they do communicate. I mean, uh, uh, for example, one of the works I have been involved with them, uh, uh, it was at a time when uh, the financial crisis was uh, deep in Europe. Uh, so the gallery where the exhibition was held was full of uh, normal people who wouldn't come to a contemporary art. So I think it's both. Uh, like, especially this right. work they do, they're also making, uh, like Whitworth Art Gallery, to raise uh, revenue. Yeah. So it's not just a reflection on economics and finance, but also communicating to a wider audience than the art world. And of course, at the heart of this project is one of the greatest works of art of all time. You know, one of the most seminal images, the most poured over images, the most extraordinarily enticing and yet mysterious image in the whole of art history. Tell us more. Yes, I mean, not everything is, is is planned. I mean, the idea of melancholia, which I introduced to them, uh, yeah. was uh, in my work to describe the knowledge problem, especially the central banks bankers were facing, because since the 2008 crisis and then, then the COVID, central banks have become very central to the economy and, and society through now, you know, very well known concept of quantitative easing, basically printing money. So I have been attracted by Dürer's Melancholia uh, painting, but also the works by the psychoanalysts like Freud's. Uh, it is uh, a feeling of loss. So basically, central bankers trying to use tools to solve uh, major economic problems. Uh, but they're not getting their results. Like today, you know, they get criticized because they didn't see the inflation. Uh, they didn't take it seriously. So using new tools, because quantum easing was about using tools. So Dürer's uh, print is this excellent sort of uh, expression of this uh, scientist or alchemist uh, 
having all these tools reflecting on uh, uh, cosmological and other issues, but but still in melancholia. So, but there are different interpretations of it. So I was attracted by the art historian uh, Irvin Panofsky's interpretation of it, where mm. he said this is uh, more about uh, uh, intellectualizing the feeling of, of melancholia uh, and uh, relating to the knowledge and then not being able to, you know, these problems uh, scientists or alchemists uh, have. So that's how our conversation with Golden and Senebi started. And then I invited them to Manchester to meet the director, Alistair Hudson, with whom we were discussing, you know, having an exhibition on economics, the blockbuster, especially Alistair, who, the ex-director who started this idea. Mm. I wanted to turn uh, the Whitworth uh, Art Gallery into a Whitworth Business School. Uh, so it, it is <laughs> intervening in the economy through uh, arts and economics, which this exhibition is about. Uh, uh, so when uh, Golden Center came to the Whitworth Art Gallery, I didn't know, but then they discovered uh, that uh, there is a Dura print. <laughs> uh, so then, then obviously they went back with this new knowledge uh, so how, how this whole uh, artwork came about. Right, and so and at the heart of this project then is this idea of creating a new plate for the print. So the original print was produced in a large edition that we really? think that there are about 200 in existence, yeah, but the original print is lost. And so Golden and Senebi are, through this project, going to create a new plate yes. from which further impressions can be produced. Tell us more. It is totally golden and centipedes. I mean, I left at that stage. Right, It yeah. is uh, their work to have, uh, to think about uh, the lost plate, the, the print, but also quantum easing of central banks. And then they approach uh, Gunnar Nihis, uh, who's uh, in Sweden, and then who designs the banknotes of uh, Swedish central bank. So the whole idea came uh, at recreating the loss uh, but also it plays on the melancholia idea because melancholia is also about uh, feeling of loss object. Uh, so there is a loss object here, <laughs> which is uh, uh, Dura's uh, loss uh, plate and, and then recreating that plate uh, and then using uh, a high resolution uh, copy of the print that Whitworth owned uh, in his uh, collection. Uh, and then a banknote producer in Budapest uh, getting involved uh, in creation of that high resolution, and then Gunnar Nehes uh, using that uh, high resolution copy to create a, a plate, and then from that plate uh, printing uh, new copies of Melancholia, and then and the first 18 prints will be on uh, 16th century paper, so it is the type the paper that Dura uh, would have used uh, to print his original. And the relationship to quantitative easing is explicit in this idea of effectively using this plate. It's almost a license to print masterworks in the same way that you were talking about printing money earlier on. Uh, exactly. I mean, again, this was happening just before COVID. In fact, I was in, in, in Sweden talking to Golden and Senebi in Stockholm. And I was going to be there for three days. Uh, so each day, restrictions increased. So I was lucky to get back. Uh, it was one of the last flights so that you could, you could fly. So with uh, COVID, obviously, because this would have involved uh, financing as well. I mean, the whole thing, you know, 
painting the artist, creating the copper plate. So it has to self-finance. The, the, the financing had to be found. So they cleverly turned into, and, and also the curator, Poppy, got involved uh, as well. So we collectively started thinking about how can we self-finance this project so it can uh, happen. But also at that time, there was a huge cut to arts organizations. Uh, so the Whitworth Art Gallery as well found itself uh, in, in a position, you know, how to raise funds. Uh, so there is this kind of context and how to use museums, uh, uh, latent sort of uh, reserves, uh, capital that is not being circulated, uh, all these collections, how, how do you make them generate revenue? So the quantum easing then, then uh, using collections, in this case it is Dura's uh, print, make new editions, but not what the museums and galleries sell ordinarily in the uh, uh, shops or the print, but, but it is something artistic as well behind it and limited. Uh, so basically you are converting an item in the collection into new money. Right. So that's also part of the work uh, and also circumstantial things. How do you self-finance the project itself? There's a great blog, which I urge people to read, which is on the Decentralising Political Economies website. And I really urge people to read this. This is by Golden and Senebi. And an interesting point that they raise there is about finding an equivalent behaviour, the financial crisis of 2008, to the very complicated notion of melancholy in the time that Dura created the print. That is to say that among other things, melancholia in that time stood for manic hubris. And they argue, Golden and Senebi, that that therefore was what lay behind many of the issues in that financial crisis of 2008. Yes, there are those parallels. I mean, uh, we, we need to remember that the 2008 crisis happened in, in banking. Now, banking is a huge area, but it happened in investment banking. Now, investment banking is where the most highly paid bankers work. And, and they have PhDs in mathematics. Uh, so they come from the best universities uh, with best degrees. I mean, we know Goldman Sachs, it is anecdotal that you have to have 100 interviews before you get uh, you know, uh, recruited. Uh, highly numerical mathematical models uh, creating these derivatives. Uh, and universities like uh, MIT, you know, at the leading edge of uh, uh, science and technology, they're creating uh, a business school uh, departments called uh, financial engineering labs. So that they really took it seriously that, that, you know, we can financially engineer solutions to social problems. And one of the Nobel Prize winners, uh, too, he was uh, promoting financial engineering finance as a science. Uh, but then all of a sudden, the whole world uh, woke up to the fact that uh, it wasn't science, uh, it was alchemy. And, and yeah, it, it is a very melancholic moment uh, because uh, we could have a very serious social crisis as well as economic crisis if central banks didn't intervene at the scale that they did. We all hear about 1929. I mean, it could be capitalism's biggest sort of uh, defeat. It was such a historical moment, and we still really haven't recovered fully from its effects. Uh, 
So rationality goes out. It becomes all emotions, uh, psychology, and a huge melancholy about the future of humanity, future of capitalism. And then, you know, it was a very melancholic uh, period in that sense. So lastly, tell us, if I'm a visitor to the Whitworth Art Gallery and I want to see Economics, the blockbuster, what will I see and what kind of manifestation of this project by Golden and Senebi will be in the gallery or online or whatever? And can I indeed buy an edition of Melancholia? Yes, it is possible to buy. There are 18 uh, first uh, editions and then they are special because... uh, I'm not an expert, but as I got involved in the technical side of the uh, project, apparently the copper plate, as you make more copies from that copper plate, the quality of prints deteriorate. So it would be possible to see the first uh, 18 prints and the plate itself. So that will be in itself uh, a big benefit to visitors who come and physically see were because the quality will be the quality of the first prints. But uh, after the 18 first prints, there will be other prints at different scales of uh, prices. So it would be possible to buy at a different price. But then obviously this being a financial game uh, play on finance, there will be a secondary market. Uh, It could be that people pay more in the secondary market than they paid in the the, the first uh, original uh, print. Uh, but it will be part of the Economics the Blockbuster exhibition, so there will be a context. There will be other artworks where artists intervene in today's uh, economics in, in different ways, but specifically about the uh, melancholia, it will be special experience of the first 18 editions, but also being able to buy copies now or later. Well, Ismail, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Economics, the blockbuster, it's not business as usual, is at the Whitworth Art Gallery in Manchester until the 22nd of October. And the Manchester International Festival continues until the 16th of July. And that's it for this episode and indeed for this season. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Julie Mahowska and David Clack. And David's also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, James, Emilio and Ishmael. Thank you for listening. We're back on the 1st of September, but there's another series of A Brush With beginning on the 2nd of August. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.